It's Monday, July 2nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio for Motley Fool Asset Management, Bill Barker. Welcome to the second half of 2018. Thank you. It's good to finally be here. <laughs> How was the first half from an investing standpoint? It seemed like it went okay. Some hiccups here and there. Uh, it depended. Depended on, on whether you were invested in tech or not. I don't have the exact data in front of me, but I read an article that uh, you know, the information tech sector was up 10%, which was 99.x percent of the, the total amount. Like all uh, of the returns that you got um, were in tech. So, if you had a pure tech portfolio, which I imagine some uh, listeners uh, may be very heavily overweighted in information tech, they're probably pretty happy. What about at uh, the folks you work with, Motley Fool Asset Management? I'm assuming there's some some information tech stocks in those funds. Depends on the product. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, the. Uh, Motley Fool Global Opportunities Fund, which is overweight tech, uh, had a pretty good first half of the year, um, and the you know small and mid caps did better than the S and P 500. So uh, so that was good for our, one of our other funds. This is going to be an all mailbag episode for a couple of reasons. One of which is it's it's a quiet week. I mean, we've got uh, Independence Day smack dab in the middle of the week. Uh, not a lot of companies reporting earnings. And uh, it's going to be a short week for us here on Market Foolery. So we'll be here today and tomorrow. Excellent opportunity for listeners to check out some of the Motley Fool's other podcasts like Motley Fool Answers or Rule Breaker Investing. Uh, let's, uh, let's go to the mailbag. And by the way, you can always email us marketfoolery at fool.com. A question from Roy Ben Daniel in Tel Aviv, going to international right off the bat. Do you have a word of advice for the beginning investor investing in index funds or individual companies? Thanks. Great question, and I think one of those questions that that a lot of beginning investors ask, like, well, not just how do I get started, but where do I start? And I think in general, all things being equal, we're fans right off the bat of the index fund, particularly if you can get it at a low cost, which you should be able to do. Right, and the low cost has gotten lower and lower and lower with competition, and so the index fund or index funds 10, 20 years ago largely would have translated into the S and P 500 being an index and the one that more money was aggregated around in the fund space. There are a lot of index funds now that with the popularity of index funds, and really that should be the popularity of low-cost investing, um, a lot of people have created more and more refined and sometimes um, you know, very specific indices. So, I think that the S&P 500 index fund, or if you want to go broader, uh, Vanguard total market index fund, uh, are great places, fantastic places to start, because they give you um, Broad diversification and low cost, and that's those are two great things when you're a beginning investor. Individual stocks, uh, you can make a lot more mistakes. There's risk and reward is the equation there. You're taking a lot more risk on if you're just buying one or two or three stocks. Might be more fun. Might keep you more focused on what your investment is doing. Uh, but it also carries with it the risk that you are not properly diversified. Well, and ultimately, for anyone who's interested in investing in individual companies, we're fans of you know get to the point 
when it is financially feasible, where you've got a diversified portfolio, so not just sort of the anchor of an index fund, whether it's a total market or S&P 500, that sort of thing, but you've got you've got a portfolio built out with ideally north of 10 stocks, I would say. Yes. Uh, so, if you're an individual investor, and a, sorry, a beginning investor, uh, yeah, learn right. learn about yourself. Only individual investors are listening right now. I don't Is think that so. There are I, no nobody's like. There's not a party. There's not a party. Is there? Are there listening parties for this podcast? No. Do you suppose? And there's there's not institutional investors. There's not like you know someone is playing this market foolery episode in a conference room with a dozen or so analysts on Wall Street listening at once. That's sad. I, I, <laughs> it's a couple of things. I don't think sad is on the list. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. You did. Uh, I think we were trying to provide useful advice rather than these uh, tangents that you always insist on going on Sorry. when I show up. Well, it is part of the official Market Foolery Twitter feed description. Occasional tangents. So, for anyone out there who's like, ah, I just don't like the tangents, that's fine. Just know that that's baked into the description of this show. Right. So, keep your costs low, be diversified. And uh, when you're a new investor, that's a little harder to do than when you have a little bit more experience. You can get excited by. Seeing one or two stocks go up, or, or frightened by seeing one or two stocks go down. So know yourself um, when you're investing, and if you have, say, most of your money in an index fund, and you use part of your money to uh, get more lessons, both about yourself and about the market, through buying individual stocks, uh, certainly, uh, you know, our site, our newsletters, various things uh, help individual investors um, learn about potential good opportunities on individual stocks. And I think that that is more interesting than following the broad market. But uh, most investors are going to benefit from just having a broad market index fund and buying and holding for decades. I said this is going to be a mailbag episode. We're actually going to provide three ways you can submit questions here on Market Foolery. One is the email address, marketfoolery@fool.com. We also have a Facebook group for all of the Motley Fool podcasts. Uh, so if you're on the Facebook and uh, want to join, you can. You're more than welcome to join us at Motley Fool Podcasts. We got a question, and I've got your phone number. Uh, available for? I don't think you do actually. It's on my phone. Not that I would remember it, yeah. but my phone has it. Yeah, exactly. Because we're at the point in life where we don't remember phone numbers. No, no. Do you know your kids like uh, phone numbers? I know the area code. <laughs> it's 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 sad. There are more yeah. digits than that. I realize, but I've got those first three down cold. Uh, question submitted through the Facebook group from David Stansfield in Colorado. Do you have any thoughts on Westrock? I own it for the long term. Westrock, a company we don't talk about all that often. I think um, when Mike Olson was on the podcast last year, we ended up talking about Westrock, which is Westrock is one of the largest paper and packaging companies in the world, um, and this company has popped up in the past when uh, people have looked at sort of the the rise of e-commerce and not just Amazon, but all kinds of e-commerce. And if more and more things are going to be shipped, then in theory, you're going to need more and more paper products to ship them in. And so, a few times in the past, people have asked, "Hey, wait a minute, who's making all these cardboard boxes?" And Westrock is uh, is one of those companies. Any thoughts on Westrock? 
at the moment, I'm a fan of Westrock, but maybe not for the reasons why uh, the question came in. They bought uh, or have agreed to buy Capstone uh, Paper and Packaging, which is a longtime holding of uh, our our fund, our small and mid cap fund. So uh, that stock is up 52% Capstone for the year. Uh, very much unlike Westrock, uh, which is not up. Uh, so they they paid a premium to acquire to agree to acquire Capstone, and the deal hasn't finalized yet. So there's there's still some chance that uh, it might not get approved by the regulators for for some reason. Uh, but it looks like it'll go through. The market is pricing that in. And meanwhile, Westrock has grown a tremendous amount. Uh, as a company, um, it's been a sort of a serial acquirer, and uh, and yet the the stock is not performed nearly as well, and that is a function of investing in highly cyclical uh, products, uh, you know, or sectors, paper. Um, you know, is not a growth industry. It's it's very much a cyclical industry where. All the participants are basically uh, at the mercy of the market pricing for paper and corrugated paper, craft paper. It, it does a lot of different kinds of container board and, and paper and packaging, uh, but the market sets the price for that. And you know, it's a commodity producer. There really isn't. There's good and bad management within commodity producing uh, sectors, but uh, at the end of the day, you're largely just taking what the you know what the market gives you, and and so you don't really get the same sort of compounding effects of growth. Uh, but if you're good for some reason at timing the cycles, you can make a lot of money on on the cycle. So if you bought this at the sort of beginning of 2016. Uh, you've doubled your money, but if you bought it when it first came uh, public, I think, um, you know, or, or, or you bought it in 2015, it, it's flat. So, well, and anytime, anytime I hear the phrase "serial acquirer," the first question that pops into my head about any company that is looking to just buy as many competitors as possible, and that's how they're going to achieve growth. The first question that pops into my mind is. Well, how are they doing at the integration? Because anytime we've seen trouble for companies in that mode of growth, that's usually, if it's not the number one reason they're not getting it done, it's certainly in the top three. That they're they're going out and buy buying, and they're not really thinking through. Well, how are we going to? Ring out the synergies with this company we just bought. How are we going to integrate them and the people from that company into our corporate culture to the extent that we have one? Uh, and I, I can't give you a good answer on that, except that it's a good question to ask when looking at at whether you should be an investor in a serial acquirer. Uh, there are economies of scale uh, with you know this is this is a company that in two thousand and seven, let's say. Uh, go back a little bit before the recession, so we're not anchoring on those numbers. Doing about two billion a year in sales, uh, fifteen billion now. So tremendous growth uh, at the top line. Uh, and but the the bottom line, you know, you're you're. Uh, it's obviously where did you get the money to acquire all that stuff? It's issued a lot of shares over that time, and and I think. The story is a good one here, and they have managed. They have 
allocated capital well, but despite the fact that they are, you know, seven times the size in terms of sales, uh, they're also they've they've diluted uh, a fair amount. They've got about four times as many shares out. So it's it's more like, you know, the the earnings per share have have a little bit better than doubled in the last ten years. Third way you can submit questions is on our Twitter feed, which is at MarketFoolery. Question from Sam Muffley in New York. I expect you'll find a way to discuss these new Oreo flavors on MarketFoolery. Yes, we will, Sam, and it's via your question. That's that's how we're going to discuss these. Um, so, for, for any listeners who are relatively new, welcome. Thanks for checking us out. Uh, I've made no secret uh, over the past year or so for my utter disdain for the way the Mondelez management, specifically in the Oreo division at Mondelez, have just gotten drunk with power and are just... I mean, you talk about Westrock just issuing new shares. I mean, that's nothing compared to the way the Oreo executives are just like spitting out new Oreo flavors with, with no regard whatsoever to shareholder value. Well, I'd like a point of clarification. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, there are times when uh, some of the listeners, some of the fans, write in to you or post on on the Twitter or the Facebook, those those kinds of things, and seek uh, our comments. Um, and whereas on the coffee, I'm a co-conspirator. I believe that Oreos is really your pet peeve, and and sometimes I'm here. To kind of work you through your issues on that, <laughs> and then sometimes it's other people. Like a lot of people have had the chance to talk Oreos with you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now I wasn't trying to get across that this is an issue for me. This is the, for you. This is entirely my thing. Yes. And again, I'm coming at it from the shareholder perspective. Just in the pa- in the past year, and feel free, like email, post on Twitter. Tell me the most rem- you know noteworthy thing the Mondelez Corporation, which is you know has a lot of different brands. Tell me the you know the biggest headlines Mondelez has garnered for any of their brands. I would argue that if it's not number one, certainly very high up the list is Oreos and their limited edition flavors. And keep in mind, they're already producing the number one cookie in the world. Oreos is fine. They're just bored over in the Oreo division, and that's why they're coming out with pistachio thins. Strawberry shortcake, peppermint bark, Rocky Road with, and wait for it, here's the kicker the Rocky Road flavor, it doesn't have nuts like Rocky Road ice cream does because they don't want to. Uh, they want to sell it to people just in. It's like, oh, you have a nut allergy? Don't worry. Our Rocky Road doesn't have nuts, it has soy nuts. And then they've got uh, Mickey Mouse, which is really just birthday cake flavor with um, small bits of mice. <laughs> Now that 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 would be amazing, but no, it's just I think the original Mickey Mouse uh, logo just stamped on the cookie. Uh, the implication that you get to eat Mickey Mouse is false, false advertising. You say, whereas everything else, they're picturing what you're going to enjoy eating. Right. When it comes to Mickey Mouse, no such luck. Mickey Mouse is an icon. Nobody's looking to bite into Mickey Mouse. Well, you're just helping helping people figure that out, yeah. I suppose. Um, and again, just to go back to the uh, the investing part. Uh, over the past year, when the market is up, the S and P 500 is up 12 percent. Shares of Mondelez down 5 percent. They're just fiddling while Rome burns, and by Rome, I mean their own shareholder value. All right. Well, as I say, I'm here mostly to help you work through your issues on this before we get to the coffee story. Rather than yes, where we both have issues. Uh, 
it's tough, tough world for packaged uh, brand, you know, foods, uh, and and so Mondelez and Oreos, um, it may be sort of distracting from the larger story, uh, which is that this is. Not been uh, easy times for any of these companies, and they've probably—I don't know whether they've outperformed the competition uh, over the time period that you're uh, looking at. Um, but it, if they've underperformed, it's not because Oreos is the problem; it's it's because of the industry. Which is exactly my point. They are in get out of the industry. No, no, no. They're in an industry that is struggling right now. We've talked before about how you know the consumer goods. Uh, and in particular, packaged food is struggling right now. So they are again. They already have the number one best-selling cookie. Why would you waste any resources in Oreos? If I'm running Mondelez, I'm looking at the Oreo division and saying, "Look, anyone who's working on anything other than just simply producing the basics, and by the basics I mean Oreos and double stuff, we've already got the you know. I think that I think they're number one and number two." And so they're fine in the cookie department. Take anyone in that division, any money you're throwing at advertising or promoting these limited edition things, put it somewhere else because the rest of your business is on fire right now, not in the good way of being on fire. What I think you need to do is extend an invitation to somebody from Mondelez for one of your many fine podcasts and radio shows to talk through the serious business issues. Uh, of your proposed strategy, which may be a value-creating one, uh, but they may have somebody that would uh, be able to educate you. Like this is this is why we're doing this, and and it is free advertising. Part of it is that they are getting, as you point out, much more attention for this than for. You know, the other brands, which I've just gone to their site: Chips Ahoy, Nutter Butter, Ritz, Wheat Thins, Honeymade Graham Crackers, Trident, Dentine—all great brands. These are these are all things that you haven't bothered to say anything about in your adult lifetime, probably. Yeah, that's probably true. And yet, Oreos—you uh, end up promoting through your your. Bitter uh, recounting of their extended brands. I just hate to see companies waste shareholder money, and that's what's been going on at Mondelez for the last couple of years. Uh, let's get to the coffee story, which comes via Christian Myers, who uh, tweeted it and just simply wrote, "Drink up." And it is the latest, and I say the latest because there there is a long string, an increasingly long string of scientific research. Putting forth the idea and supporting the idea that coffee might be the greatest natural drug on the planet Earth in terms of health. Um, and this comes via an article on uh, Science Daily. Caffeine from four cups of coffee protects the heart with the help of mitochondria. Um, and let me just let me just give you the the, the key quote here um, from one of the researchers. Um, uh, which is that these results uh, should lead to better strategies for protecting heart muscle from damage, including consideration of coffee consumption or caffeine as an additional dietary factor in the elderly population. So, look, you're not a scientist. Producer Dan Boyd is not a scientist. The only person who comes close is me. And I take this to mean that uh, this research is saying, look, if you're a younger person, you should think about upping your coffee consumption. If you're an older person, 
you really should be upping your coffee consumption. Good point. Good question. Uh, so I wasn't listening closely because I was looking at something to uh, maybe use comment. Did you say that you were close to a scientist? I'm saying in a group of you, me, and Dan Boyd, I'm the closest, and I say that because my kid is studying to be a nurse. <laughs> I'm not saying it's sound logic. It's just the one I'm going with. <laughs> well, that sounds to me like you're the closest to being a nurse. Right. Nurses are not scientists. Well, there's some science involved there, as I understand it. Okay. Regardless, um, one more bit of uh, research supporting our belief that coffee is the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. And those that uh, mistakenly try to quote unquote help others by saying, eh, don't you think you're drinking too much coffee? There is no such thing, is what we're trying to get at. Unless you have hypertension. There are occasions where if you have hypertension, um, you've got high blood pressure, then, then coffee is not beneficial uh, for those things. But uh, being, as it is, a fruit, uh, it's just remarkable that it doesn't get more attention. And this whole new information about midichlorians is uh, especially useful. It's mitochondria. Sounds like midichlorians, which, as you know, are the power for the Force in the Star Wars movies. Midichlorians? Midichlorians, yeah. Don't remember that part from... Uh... You guys don't want to go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> you, you really don't. Did that come up in any of the movies? Or? It did. Yeah, you you apparently are not a, a geek enough of a fan. Although Dan might be able to comment here um, on it. Yes, it's a point of great contention with with Star Wars fans. A lot. It's from uh, the Phantom Menace. Okay. Which uh, a lot of people didn't like, and it, the whole inclusion of it doesn't really make any sense or have any bearing whatsoever on the story. Yet it's like a central part of this terrible movie. Yeah, but the the good news is that Star Wars may may I mean uh, coffee may help uh, increase your power with the Force because of this new study, is what I'm hearing. Maybe there's a follow up article on ScienceDaily.com that we can look forward to. Yeah, um, the World Cup is going on. Wimbledon is now underway, um, uh, and. From a business standpoint, uh, you mentioned something. You're you're a big tennis fan, but you mentioned something which is um, pretty surprising in the in the sports business world, which is Roger Roger Federer, um, still one of the one of the best, if not the best, tennis players in the world, despite the fact that he's 36, which is not old in real terms, but it's old for a tennis player, and um, has been associated with Nike for basically his entire professional career. And he took the court at Wimbledon, was not decked out in Nike gear, and instead is um, wearing a Japanese brand called uh, Uniqlo or Uniqlo. I'm mispronouncing it one of those two ways. I'm not sure which. Um, sources say the deal is worth more than $300 million guaranteed over 10 years. That's astonishing, um, given his age. It would be one thing if Roger Federer were 26 or 30. The fact that he's got this. Uh, you know, reportedly ten-year, three hundred million dollar deal uh, with this apparel company in Japan. Um, that's a bold move. Yeah, Uniqlo, uh, which is, I guess, the best known of the brands under uh, fast retailing, which is the uh, company uh, parent company uh, for that you can invest in, um, and. It's it is a remarkable deal. Three hundred million. Federer has no obligation to even play 
I think there's a clause in there that he gets paid even if he doesn't pay play, uh, and I don't think he'll be playing for ten years at least not in, in the main draws. Whether he ends up going into the sort of uh, the senior circuit at some point, I don't know whether that would have any interest to him. But uh, he's he's made in his in his life he's made 116 million right on court. 300 million for wearing these clothes. And uh, this is just one of the brands that he endorses. I can easily understand why Nike did not attempt to match this offer. They've, they've just got this is they, they've got too many people in, in house, too many people that would look at that and say, well, now I would like a contract like that too. Uh, and he is more or less unique for Uniqlo. So he. Are, is getting their name in the press today, and will continue to do so for at least as long as he's really a, a great competitor uh, in the, the draws of the Grand Slams, uh, which I think has got I don't know hard to hard to say when the end would, of that would be, but it's not ten years. Do you have a prediction for uh, this year's Wimbledon tournament? Well, Federer's draw is looking awfully good. Uh, I think he is. Certainly, nobody's guaranteed uh, to win any of their matches, but he looks about as strong to get through the early rounds as, as anybody, just based on who his competition is going to be. A lot of interesting players coming off of injuries still. Uh, I'm hoping Zverev uh, finally puts together a decent Grand Slam. Uh, everybody likes uh, uh, Juan Martin Del Potro, and he's pretty healthy right now. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if Djokovic can finally string together a full tournament of, of uh, top-level play. Uh, so the uh, prediction—I I, I would predict Federer to get into the semi. I'll go that far. Have you ever been to Wimbledon? Like I have, for, yeah, for, for the tournament. Yeah. When was this? I, not playing. Is no, 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 no. <laughs> there was not even one one thousandth of one percent that suggested that I thought <laughs> that you played in even an opening round of Wimbledon. That's not a knock on you. My dad almost played in Wimbledon. Really? Yeah. He could have. He could have if he had had the money to get over there. Didn't want to make the trip. Yeah, that was back when. That was back when. You know, you, there was no money in it. It was he was uh, just out of college. Well, and that was I remember you he talk- played in the U.S. What now is the U.S. Open uh, at the time was the U.S. Nationals when they were all um, amateur events. But it was basically the same quality of, of competition at that uh, as as at Wimbledon. It was closed to to amateurs, and he would have he would have been uh, he would have been able to play. When would this have been? Fifty four. Okay, so uh, yeah, because I remember you telling me years ago that when we were talking about. I think we were talking about well, who's the greatest of all time, and and any time in tennis, uh, that discussion comes up, um, it is almost immediately, it almost immediately centers around well, here's how many Grand Slam titles this person has won, and one of the people who's high on that list is um, is it Rod Laver, yeah, from Australia, and you pointed out to me that well, the thing about, the thing you need to know about the Australian Open is that um, there was a good stretch of time where a lot of really great players didn't make the trip because you need you need so much time to adjust your body clock and that kind of thing. So Laver, being native to the country, kind of had that tournament to himself. Still a great player, but but it's a it's a little skewed. 
Well, in Laver, so Laver's case, uh, he won the Grand Slam twice, only person to ever do that. And uh, the data point that, that Roy Emerson won the Australian Open many times, and that was at a time where he maintained his amateur status uh, while Laver went pro and was no longer able to play. Uh, in the Australian and other tournaments until they became open in 68, I think, 68, 69. Uh, so Emerson piled up a number of his Grand Slam wins uh, and had the, the record uh, for on the men's side for most Grand Slam wins until Sampras broke it. But it was not considered the standard by which you know you would judge the greatest of all time. Uh, because of the sort of the mechanisms there of the Australian being a great tournament, but not one that everybody could get to easily, uh, and also just the, his length of, of time on the amateur side. So on the women's side, another prediction. Um, boy, always hard to predict. A lot of different winners of the the women's uh, Grand Slam tournaments over the last three years, uh, and I think Muguruza is interesting. Um, and if anybody can predict how Serena is going to do and how her body is going to hold up uh, after having to retire uh, from the French, you know, I don't know. And uh, the, the tune-up tournament, uh, was, uh, Caroline Wozniacki won, right? Uh, I guess I missed, I, I missed I, I that. I think that's one. right. Yeah. So that's that's she's. If uh, not an indicator of who's going to win, it's often an indicator of who's going to advance pretty far. She has has got her Grand Slam victory. Halep does. Uh, a lot of different players have got, you know, one or two, and then Serena and Venus have all the rest. In hindsight, for anyone who's still listening, the point where we started talking about Oreos, that was your clue that the bulk of the investing conversation was done. Well, you had an investing point to make. I had an investing point to make about that, and we did talk about the business of Nike. But right, you're advising really, people to go back in time and stop listening uh, at at whatever point that is. Um, I mean, to the extent that anyone has access to a time machine, uh, there are probably better things to do with that right. time machine. But yeah, certainly seems say, like a trivial use of it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Although, frankly, getting those ten minutes back, that's still ten minutes. Yeah, if you're just if look if you're you have a time machine. Kind of like with investing, you don't want to just jump in willy nilly and just oh I'm gonna you know go back in time and do X Y Z. No, test it out. Do the little things. So yeah, actually, if you have a time machine, go back in time like ten minutes or so to when we started talking about Oreos and be like oh I don't need to listen to this. Maybe the whole episode. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people do that. Okay, like oh it's one of those. I can skip this one and go straight to industry focus. It's it's where where host Shannon Jones is uh, talking about something of actual importance, which is our nation's banking system and the stress tests. I'll go, I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to listen to industry focus. That's what I'm going to do. We're wading into the the, the quiet days for the podcast where before. Why do you think I said starts? it's a short week for us? <laughs> Bill Barker, Motley Fool Asset Management. Go to FoolFunds.com. And read more. You don't have to have a time machine to go. You can just go to FoolFunds.com and check out the writings from Bill Barker and Brian Hinman and the entire crew at Motley Fool Asset Management. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.